0: And then we can go to the second topic. I don't know much about it. Let's see if I understand. You You said that we could talk a little bit about the survival analysis.
1: Yeah, sure. So at UNC Chapel Hill, we have some really great faculty that are working in like epi methods areas, epidemiological methods. Um, and so it's something that I've been learning a lot about my curriculum that I thought would just be interesting to to uh, bring out there because it's um, I don't know if it's as widely known in our area as it is in the you know the strict Epi methods type of literature, but it's and it's something I've been trying to explore myself for my own analyses. And so the idea is that there's the common approach I've seen a lot of papers of physical activity and health um, is to look at cost proportional hazard models, and that approach has a lot of appealing characteristics, and it's a great way to look at a continuous um, exposure like physical activity or sedentary behavior. But there are some well-known characteristics of the hazard ratio that are limitations, at least when you're trying to think about things causally. So one of them is that it only provides a relative measure of effect or association, uh, whereas absolute measures better communicate public health importance. Um, So to illustrate this, we're looking at relative effect measures versus absolute effect measures. So a classic example of a relative measure is a relative risk versus the absolute measure would be the risk difference. Two classic examples. So if you take an example, let's say a study finds that a certain level of physical activity leads to a relative risk of 0.5 for cardiovascular disease. Um, so that's about half the cases, right? That could mean that the level of physical activity led, to, led the risk to go from 2% to 1%. So it's like a 1% absolute difference, one percentage point difference, or it could mean it went from 25% to 50% or 50% to 25%. Right. That's an absolute difference of 25%. So that's kind of getting at the idea that like absolute measures help to better communicate public health importance, whereas relative measures, you know, they're not as beneficial in that respect. And then there's also, again, talking about the hazard ratio. The hazard ratio actually has a built in selection bias. Um, And there's a really great paper on this by uh, Hernan from 2010 called The Hazards of Hazard Ratios. Um, so I won't go into too deeply, but essentially when you look at the hazard ratio at a given point in time, uh, you're looking only at those who have not had your event yet, so have not had cardiovascular disease at that point in time. Um, so you're just selecting a subset of the sample um, that may not be exchangeable with the other, if you imagine you're doing this in groups, the other group that you're looking at, um, even if you adjust for baseline factors. So there's a built-in selection bias of the hazard ratio. Again, I recommend Hernan 2010 in that paper for more details on that.
0: And how widely is this used?
1: Yeah, so it is it is what I am most familiar with. There are some papers that use alternative approaches that I've seen, uh, and it tends to be a feature of the papers that they kind of you know, ad, advertise, but it's definitely a lot of our epidemiological literature uses the hazard ratio. And again, one of the benefits of it is that, well, first, it's the semi, semi-parametric, which is you know, nice. You don't have to estimate your baseline hazard. Um, and also it is, uh, it's a great way to summarize a continuous measure. You get a nice little, nice curve with it, but there are some alternative approaches that have, that can, a, don't have a built-in selection bias. And also they, uh, can give you absolute measures like a risk difference. I guess I can, I can talk about those a little bit. Um, yeah, please. again, this is not my area. I'm just, you know, studying epi right now. If But there's a really great, uh, Free e-textbook on it by uh, Hernan and Robbins, um, who are great, very familiar with this area. Robbins has been publishing on this stuff and kind of developed a lot of these methods, and Hernan's also been helping with that and also trying to explain what Robbins is talking about <laughs> because Robbins' papers are very complicated. But there's a really great book on it called Causal Inference: What If by Hernan and Robbins, and I can send you the link. I don't know if you want to link it in your show notes or whatever. Um, but it's a free textbook. It has a lot of it has R code, SAS code, and Stata code with it as well um, for all the methods that are discussed. Um, but there is for survival analysis, there's basically three methods they talk about. Um, so this inverse probability weighting of marginal structural models, G estimation of structural nested models, and the parametric parametric G formula. I know they all sound kind of complicated, but again, the code's pretty straightforward, and this R package is built around these. And the parametric G formula I'll talk a little bit more because it's actually simpler than you might think. Um, all you kind of do is you fit a model to estimate the hazard across time for a group. So you have this model that looks at, you know, the hazards of cardiovascular disease, one model, and then and you put that for your, you know, your entire population. Um, and then you have, you know, like Y equals MX plus B, right? And then you can just plug in whatever you want for like the uh, the X, right? So, and then that's going to give you, so for example, if you t- say it's t- per day, Right. So the hazard of cardiovascular disease equals is a function of um, steps per day. Right. You just plug in whatever you want for that term for steps steps per day, let's say 10,000, and then you get a hazard for that. And then you can just integrate, you know, multiply that across time, that hazard, and you'll get a risk. Right. So let's say now I have it for 10,000 steps per day. Right. I plug that in. Then I can do it for 5,000 steps per day. I just plug in 5,000. Um, and then I'm going to get the risk for 5,000. And now I have an estimate of what if I increase the steps in my total population from 5,000 to 10,000. I just take the difference between those two, and now I have a risk difference. So it's pretty intuitive process. And again, there's you know some other things to include about you know and for confounders in that model as well, and selection bias and things, other things you can do. But those are all you know, standard, include your covariates and things like that. Um, and again, there's code for that available in that free e-textbook.
0: Sounds good. So, if, if some of the listeners are thinking that maybe they, they don't know these methods and maybe they are thinking that they could maybe use it, what what are the requirements for their data or, or other things that when can you use these?
1: So, for, first of all, I, I want to say that uh, these are sometimes talked about as like causal inference methods, and people are very hesitant about talking about causal inference when you're doing observational studies. But in reality, we're kind of, and this might be a hot take, but we're always doing causal inference when we're doing these these studies. That's why we're looking at the effect of selectivity in health. It's not because we're interested in association. We're in, interested in a causal effect. We just know there could be a lot of factors that can lead to bias, right? No, we acknowledge that, but we're still trying to do this. So in that sense, these quote unquote causal inference methods are no different than doing a cost proportional hazard model just because they're turned in this idea of causal inference methods. It's all the same. Um. And the same, you know, you say the stuff, the same stipulations that you would have if you did any observational study. And so now that I've addressed that, you can really use them in any instance that you would use a Cox proportional hazard model, that typical approach with your survival data, Um, as long as you have, you know, your, your baseline, your outcomes, and you have your follow-up data as far as like when people were censored and when the events occurred. Um, And these approaches are very flexible too. You can also, uh, you can adjust for If you have like repeated measures of covariates you can adjust for those um so you can you know include for covariates at multiple points in time you can also include like multiple measures of physical activity so in that sense they're very flexible in the ways you can include these additional things like multiple measures um so yeah and they will also another appealing approach is they give you very uh they're very again very flexible um and they allow you to estimate Effects of hypothetical interventions, not hypothetical interventions that it's any cause like you don't have to worry about confounding and stuff like that. Again, all those stipulations still apply, but again, like I illustrated, the hypothetical intervention of increasing steps by five thousand for each person, right, or everybody went from five thousand to ten thousand, or everybody increasing for their baseline by you know two thousand, so things like that, or you can you know increase in certain pop. Say I want fifteen percent of my population to increase their steps, right by 2000 and then 10% of them, you know, decrease them by 33%, right? All these different approaches you might want to possibly look at where this is hypothetical intervention that does this thing in your population. You can kind of incorporate that into this very flexible type of way of modeling.
0: Yeah. Sounds interesting. So what is the state of your PhD? When do you see it, see finishing your PhD and what, what are the plans for, for the future?
1: Yeah. So I probably have at least two years left. Um, And so I'm working on getting together some of my We have this thing, an interdepartmental review here at UNC, so I'm working on that. And I have an outline of my dissertation ready, and I'm kind of, you know, working through that, deciding what I want to incorporate, what one of these types of survival analysis methods I want to incorporate. I'm kind of looking at that stuff now. um, And I've already, you know, worked on all my code for making all these metrics, which as you can see from my presentation. um, So, you know, I'm kind of parsing out my dissertation. I already have a good idea about that. Um, And from there, I am not quite sure. not sure if I—I I know my parents might listen to this, but I may or may not want to stay in North Carolina. Um, but I'm also, you know, probably looking for doing research somewhere else. I think I want to stay in the academic area uh, and do some more research.
0: Yeah, and I, I have to say that when you when you sent me an email of the the files for this this podcast, you were the the best prepared podcast guest. So I I need to say that you are very well organized. With all the pictures in a zip file and everything perfectly perfectly named. So I, I give you credit. So if, if when he's finishing his PhD and he's looking for a job, I, I give my, my recommendation for you. And is, is your group looking for any, any collaboration? Is there anything you want to, want to promote here?
1: Um, I don't think there's anything necessarily I want to promote. Um, I'll promote ProPass. I think check out propass they have a lot they're doing a lot of great work over there um i think ollie had a podcast on on here uh from maybe a month or so ago um about them they're doing some really great work
0: yeah perfect this was very interesting discussions uh, about two two different themes thank you for taking the time for this this
1: podcast yeah thank you for having me again i appreciate all the work you're doing